4: I was at home. I was upstairs in bed.
1: I was asleep.
2: I heard the next
0: morning. That would be the morning of December the fifth last year. Let's rewind to ten seconds before 1:03 a.m. that night. A technician in a control room, east of San Francisco, is counting down as if for a space launch. The room is modelled on mission control in Houston, but it doesn't have much to do with rockets. At 1.03, the countdown ends. A tiny pulse of electricity begins a journey of about a mile at the speed of light towards a target held in the middle of a giant sphere. The target is smaller than a peppercorn. The sphere is in the middle of a ten-storey target chamber. The target chamber is encased in eight feet of concrete. The electric pulse over the course of its journey is focused, split and amplified into the biggest laser in the world. Not one laser, in fact, but 192 of them. Each one among the biggest in the world. The journey takes a fraction of a second. In that time, those 192 laser beams use as much energy as the rest of the United States combined. In the final nanosecond of the journey, they all converge on that smaller-than-a-peppercorn-sized target and crush it to 500 billion times normal atmospheric pressure. And they trigger a nuclear fusion reaction that generates a temperature of 100 million degrees Celsius at that spot in the middle of the sphere. The reaction releases trillions upon trillions of highly energised neutrons that flee to the edge of the sphere and through it. Most of them end up buried in those eight-foot concrete walls. Anyone standing between the sphere and the walls at that moment would die instantly. But that's not the cool part. The cool part is that on this occasion, 103 in the morning, December the 5th, 2022, two megajoules of energy are deposited on the target and three are released. More out than in. For the first time in a lab anywhere, ever. There is a caveat, and we'll get to that, but the two-in, three-out part could change the world. It could actually save the world. And that is really the, the Wright brothers' moment. But it was more than that. In 1903, when the Wright brothers had their moment the biosphere wasn't facing an existential crisis because of climate change. It is now. And that laser shot four months ago pointed to a way out of it. It pointed to unlimited clean energy from nuclear fusion. I'm going to pause a moment at this point to let people throw things at the radio or whatever you use to listen to podcasts. There. Because nuclear fusion energy does make some people cross, or at least competitive, Frustrated. For most of the past 60 years, it's been the technology that's always decades from fruition.
1: Yeah, the, the standard joke was fusion energy is 50 years away from whatever day you ask.
0: The promise unfulfilled, the hobby horse of monomaniacs, the box of docks marked handle with care when it lands on politicians' desks. But not anymore. All of a sudden, fusion is fashionable. Governments and venture capitalists are throwing money at it, or at least getting ready to. And that is all the more extraordinary when you consider that the instruction manual for the world-changing experiment of December 5th, a scientific paper published in the journal Nature, was written with great confidence, detailed calculations, precise forecasts as to energy requirements and yield in 1972, 50 years ago. Three of the four people who wrote that paper are still alive. They're in their 80s and 90s now. The hard grind of putting their ideas into practice, they've left to younger generations. But still, they might well ask, what took you so long? I'm Giles Wittell, and this is Ignition. They've only gone and done it. A slow newscast from Tortoise Media. across as it shatters both land and sea. The
4: shockwave races 35 miles and reaches the control ship with force enough to jar the solidly mounted camera.
1: So I'm Kim Budel. I'm the laboratory director at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory. One of the key physics challenges uh, that researchers at Lawrence Livermore and our sister lab at Los Alamos were trying to understand uh, was nuclear fusion. And the only places you could really study nuclear fusion were in the most extreme objects in the universe, uh, places like the sun where you could observe from a long distance, or in operating nuclear weapons.
0: Weapons like Ivy Mike detonated complete with orchestral soundtrack in that earlier clip. Ivy Mike was the first ever H-bomb. It was a thousand times more powerful than the atom bomb that destroyed Hiroshima. It weighed 80 tons. It vaporized an entire island in the Western Pacific in 1952. That test marked the dawn of the thermonuclear age, a new age of anxiety for nuclear scientists. One of them was John Knuckles. He arrived at Lawrence Livermore Lab in 1955, straight from college, when it was a lonely government facility in California's cow country. And he never really left. The lab's main purpose in those days was designing nuclear weapons. But quite quickly, Knuckles realized that weapons weren't ideal for studying the physics of fusion or any of the other things that fusion might be good for.
1: And so John had an idea that perhaps we could create those conditions in a laboratory. If you could create an energy source that would allow you to compress a small capsule full of hydrogen, heavy hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, And you could compress it fast enough to a high enough density, you might be able to create a self-sustaining fusion reaction in the laboratory.
0: That was the dream. Bottled fusion. Deuterium from seawater, where it occurs naturally. Tritium as a byproduct of the fusion process itself. Negligible nuclear waste. Limitless clean energy. But it was more than a dream. From the early 60s, Knuckles had his energy source in the form of lasers. And he set about imagining a machine that could bring this energy to bear on nuclear fuel with unimaginable pressure. Before I go on, the first of two confessions. We badly wanted to hear Knuckles in his own words, but in the end, we couldn't persuade him. Which I suppose is fair enough. He's 92 now, and it was suggested to us that he's wary of being lured into talking about weapons which remain highly classified. Or... Maybe he feels no need to toot his own horn, since his intellectual fingerprints are all over the December the 5th laser shot anyway. His 1972 paper is a thing of poetry, even if, like me, you only understand one word in ten. It starts easily enough. The big cell is right at the top, in plain English. Knuckles wrote,
2: Hydrogen may be compressed to more than 10,000 times liquid density by an implosion system energised by a high-energy laser. This scheme makes possible efficient thermonuclear burn of small pellets of heavy hydrogen isotopes and makes feasible fusion power reactors using practical lasers.
0: The calculations lower down are as impenetrable as Stephen Hawking's calculations on black holes but who can't fall for the phrase-making in between? For, and I quote, Fermi-degenerate electrons in white dwarf cores, or non-Maxwellian linearly coupled calculations, or Lasnik-simulated Lagrangian finite difference schemes. Fortunately, you don't need to understand any of this to understand that Knuckles saw 50 years into the future with the clarity of a time-travelling telescope. Summing up, he wrote... In effect, this scheme is a spherical ablation rocket implosion system externally energised by an optimally power-programmed high-energy laser. And that is exactly what America went ahead and built, quarter of a century later. else in the world, nowhere else can generate the temperatures and pressures and physical conditions that it happens on there. That's Gordon Brunton who runs the National Ignition Facility, the heart and soul of the Lawrence Livermore Lab. It was designed for frontier science and it was designed for the energy mission. And that is Ed Moses who built the National Ignition Facility. It is unique and extraordinary and Moses is passionate about it. He means what he says about frontier science and the energy mission. But he's very clear about something else as well. But for the arms race, and the agreement to stop nuclear testing when the Cold War ended, the National Ignition Facility would never have been built. Definitely not. It
4: would never have. You know, it was a part of a strategic decision.
0: That was stockpile stewardship. Stockpile stewardship is the lucrative business of keeping a nuclear deterrent in fighting trim without leaving the lab. When Reagan and Gorbachev agreed terms to stand down from the permanent threat of mutually assured destruction, this suddenly became a growth industry. Here's Kim Budil again.
1: So um, at the end of the Cold War, when the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty was negotiated and the US entered the nuclear test ban moratorium, the US embarked on a program to create A set of capabilities, scientific capabilities, experimental and computational, that would allow us to sustain our nuclear deterrent without a return to nuclear testing. So the core physics of nuclear fusion in the laboratory became even more important because it was the one type of physics we had no way of really accessing.
0: Ever since the early 1990s, Congress has deemed stockpile stewardship critical for U.S. national security. Now, exactly how lab experiments with lasers, even big lasers, can tell you if your missiles in their silos are good to go is something it's hard to get experts to explain. Most of this stuff turns out to be classified. But in the quest for fusion energy, it's also beside the point. Because the point here is that stockpile stewardship means money. It's the reason Congress has approved 50 billion in funding for Lawrence Livermore over the past 10 years. It's the reason the very particular sort of fusion research it can do has had more investment than most fusion startups can even dream of. It's the reason the National Ignition Facility, the NIF, got built. The NIF cost $3.5 billion, and Ed Moses says that even for Uncle Sam, it was a gutsy call.
4: Yeah, and, and and you know the whole idea of building the two megajoule laser from what was a, uh, nominally a say twenty kilojoule laser was the kind of risk that only uh, you know the government could take.
1: When the project was authorized and we started working on it, uh, the expectations for the budget were optimistic, to say the least. And a few years in, it became clear that considerably more money was going to be required to solve the technical challenges that the facility. Faced. Seven of the core technologies that would be required to make the laser system work did not exist when we broke ground to build the NIF.
0: They broke ground anyway in 1997.
1: So we began constructing this massive facility. You know, the footprint of the facility is three football fields, it's 10 stories tall at its greatest extent. It has to have a target area that's able to withstand the neutron blast that you get when you get ignition. So it's, you know, big, thick concrete walls and shielding. Uh, The target chamber had to be fabricated. It's a 10-metre diameter sphere made of aluminum, um, which turned out to be an incredible engineering challenge.
0: Ed Moses took on the project in 1999. It was five years before his team could even fire four lasers at a piece of tinfoil, ten years before the NIF was ready for action. At that point, afflicted by natural optimism and possibly a rush of blood to the head, Moses said that he reckoned his team could achieve ignition, more energy out than in, within three years. Confession number two. It was around this time that I paid my first visit to the lab, and I was swept right off my feet. My father, a physicist in his youth, had always talked about fusion, with a faraway look in his eyes. And my editor at the time was happy to be carried along by my inherited enthusiasm for something I didn't really understand. And so, I found myself at Lawrence Livermore in 2011 in the office of Mike Dunn, who at that time was director for Laser Fusion Energy. His job was to be ready to commercialise the lab's energy know-how as soon as it achieved ignition. He said at the time... The way the programme's going, and remember this was 2011, we have every expectation of a credible attempt at ignition in the next 18 months. If not, he said, serious questions will be asked. I wrote it all down. I was stunned by the audacity, the ambition of the place. This huge machine with its almost comical juxtaposition of big weapon and small target... Its gadgetry was from central casting. It even had, and still has, a thermometer the size of a mini-sub called Dante. And yet, Mike Dunn was right. Serious questions were asked because ignition didn't happen, not in the next 18 months or in the next 10 years. Mike Dunn is now a professor at Stanford, but he keeps a close eye on progress at Lawrence Livermore because he was once responsible for what would have been, and may still be, its most public aspect.
2: Now, my role was to try to design what would the step be after ignition. In fact, the whole program was based on the expectation that one day it could and should happen. But the very nature of uh, the fusion question was we couldn't be assured it would happen. You know, that there was a reasonable expectation that NIF would get there, but it
0: was built on this 50-50 chance that it would get there. That was news to me, the 50-50 part, and it recalled the story, told long after the moon landings, that mission control only gave Neil Armstrong a 50-50 chance of surviving. Uncle Sam's appetite for risk is sometimes quite startling, even if he likes to use soothing language. And so we, we were doing our due diligence to make sure
2: we were prepared, In you know, as and when NIF gets to ignition, we would know how to step forward you know, beyond that and, and have... You know the understanding of how to capture that from a fusion energy perspective you know trying to address one of the most profound questions our society has oh my goodness what do we do now we'd be prepared but there was still you know deep uncertainty no matter which approach to fusion you have there's no categoric certainty that a facility of any given size will get you there which is why you know where we're inherently uh, expectant and optimistic you have to be optimistic in the fusion world but there was no assuredness so My belief system was, my hope was, as a scientist, having looked
0: at it, that we would get there. But when? That was a big question. A big question. And the answer was eventually provided by a team of rivals, or an infusion of new blood, depending on your view. For all his clairvoyance, John Knuckles and his co-authors in 1972 got one big thing wrong.
3: The problem with their original calculations, they were much more optimistic than what Mother Nature seems to to, uh, want. So that's why there have been so many years since 1972 till now, to actually make it work.
0: This is Omar Hurricane, chief scientist for the Lawrence Livermore Inertial Confinement Fusion
3: Division. The original idea seem to imply that we could make this work with a lot less energy, laser energy, than what it ultimately did require. And part of that is because of our engineering control. If we had infinite engineering control, we could make this work with less energy. But because of the realities, we can't make perfect targets. We can't have perfect laser energy delivery. And why is perfect laser
0: energy delivery so important? Well, because plasma. At the heart of all fusion reactions in the sun, in bombs, in reactors, is superheated gas in which molecules and atoms start to come apart. They're stripped of their electrons, becoming charged or ionized. Those with the same charge repel each other, making the whole package extremely hard to control. Plasma, in short, wants to blow apart. The object in a fusion experiment is to contain it long enough hot enough, at sufficient pressure for fusion to begin. When it does, hydrogen nuclei in the fuel fuse to produce helium nuclei, plus blizzards of stray neutrons and electrons. Those helium nuclei are also known as
3: alpha particles. So we get this interesting process, you know, again, if we've done things right, where by getting a little fusion to get start going, we create these alpha particles... And if we stop some of those alpha particles, they give up some of their energy to the fusing region. When they give up their energy, that heats things up further. When we get uh, the temperature up, we get more fusion reactions. When we get more fusion reactions, we get more alpha particles. And if we can stop them, they leave their energy behind, causing the temperature to go up yet again. And this process happens over and over again very rapidly. We call that process alpha particle self-heating. And we are relying on that process to get to this state that we call ignition. Kim Budil
0: says she finds the people of the fusion community a bit like plasma. They tend to blow apart. It didn't quite happen with Omar Hurricane, but you get the impression it could have. He says his hair turned grey from the stress of dealing with colleagues who had different ideas on how to get to ignition.
3: I was uh, working on national security matters. Translation? Weapons. But we saw it happening, and uh, when it didn't work out, that's when some of us who work on the national security side were asked to get involved and and help. Now, looking back on what happened over the last uh, 10 years, there were essentially five elements of understanding building, both on the science side and on the uh, applied science side, engineering side that we needed to overcome. So they asked us to to try to uh, put together a second team to look at the experiments and form hypotheses and sort out what was going on. And at that time it was, you know, there was an adversarial aspect to it because it, it, they had an us and them sort of feel which, you know, some of that still lingers today unfortunately. But we came in with our own sets of hypothesis and own, our own sets of uh, target designs to try to uh, make progress forward. And it was kind of a shot, we have a term in the United States, a shotgun marriage. Mm-hmm. So we were kind of forced <laughs> to, to kind of uh, marry with the existing group. And you know, again, there were uh, stresses, uh, you know, interpersonal stresses involved with doing that. But technically it all worked. Big science egos? Yeah, we we all have uh, egos uh, to a degree. (laughs) (laughs) It goes with the territory.
0: territory. Of those five areas needing work, one was hydrodynamic instability. The fuel is in supercooled liquid form and needs to be spread as uniformly as possible around the inside of the target. Another was symmetry control. Stay with me because this is important. I think it's remarkable. The lasers have to hit the outside of the target with as close to perfectly spherical impact as possible. And to do this, they don't actually hit the target directly. Lasers are too pointy for that. Instead, the target is suspended in a gold cage smaller than the end joint of your little finger. In the exact centre, remember, of a sphere that's 10 metres across. All 192 lasers bounce off the inside of this cage, which is known as a hole round, and are converted in the process into X-rays, which bathe the target. Bathe is a euphemism for squashing it to a singularity using Newton's first law. They explode the outside of the target, and, since every action has an equal and opposite reaction, there's a rocket-like implosive force in the opposite direction. A third area for improvement was called energy coupling, finding ways to get more energy from the lasers into the whole realm and onto the target and a fourth was target quality the fuel containers those peppercorns had to be made stronger and more perfectly spherical Hurricane's team made gradual progress on all these fronts and in August 2021 it generated more than a megajoule of fusion energy from one NIF shot for the first time it was, says Kim Budil a shot heard round the world at least in fusion circles it meant the NIF was closing in on ignition because, forgive me here, although one megajoule is a lot less than two, everyone who knows anything about alpha particles self-heating knows that fusion energy output gain is exponential if you can keep the reaction going a fraction of a second longer. Ed Moses doesn't want to get drawn into an argument with Omar Hurricane, but he says a lot of people thought they had the keys to the kingdom of the NIF. It's a social event, he told me, not just a technological event. That's why it works. For her part, Kim Budil agrees with Omar Hurricane that 2012 was an important pivot point. And they all agree that fine tuning the target design, which turned out to be a 10 year task, was crucial. These, as a reminder, are the sub peppercorn sized capsules. Initially, they were made of plastic, now, they're made of synthetic diamond by a small team of artisan engineers in Freiburg in Bavaria.
3: Those capsules, again, are constructed through this uh, vapour deposition process where they take basically a ball of plastic, they're rolling this ball of plastic around in this vapour deposition chamber. Plasma is flying out of this thing that uh, looks like a a fountain and the the carbon is uh, being coated on the outside of that plastic shell, a plastic ball, you know, basically atoms at a time, and it's rolling around and eventually builds up to whatever thickness we need. From Freiburg, the diamond balls are shipped, sometimes hand-carried,
0: to General Atomics, a trusted contractor ever since the Cold War in San Diego. Once they get there, each one is filled with acid using a glass tube 5 microns wide to dissolve and extract the plastic, leaving pure diamond. Then they loaded onto another plane to Livermore and studied minutely through microscopes for imperfections, only the very best are used. The rest are binned. And on December the 5th, Gordon Brunton says, the stars aligned, they had a perfect target. They haven't had one since and they haven't been able to repeat ignition. But even so, the afterglow lingers.
1: When you actually achieve it, it's a little bit weird. So it took us about a day really absorb the enormity of what had happened and and then everyone was a little more giddy i would say
0: were you punching the Um, air were you drinking champagne
1: (laughs) not at one in the morning for sure but there may have been champagne toast later that's possible
0: It,
4: it just made me feel very proud to have been a part of it and very happy for the people who were doing it mike dunn is thrilled to have an answer to the meaning of
2: life um, after you know all of these years, 60 years or so, you know, we now know
0: that the answer to their question is two. As in two megajoules, give or take. The energy it takes to get ignition in a laser lab. Not 42, as in The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Omar Hurricane and his team celebrated at a nearby vineyard, although he couldn't drink because of his blood pressure.
3: It's gotten better since
0: then, yeah. And the rest of the world? Well, there was huge excitement in news terms when the U.S. Department of Energy announced the December 5th breakthrough, a week after checking the results.
1: Scientists believe they may have discovered the holy grail of clean energy, saying it could change the way we power the world.
0: There was excitement elsewhere in the fusion community, too. Nick Hawker is with First Light Fusion, a laser fusion startup in the U.K. So the first I heard about
2: about this, it was actually, it was rumours at First Light around the table tennis table. So one of our lead scientists was conspiratorially whispering, NIF is ignited. Maybe, that's what I'm hearing, rumours. And our team is very well connected. So I I immediately went to everyone I knew super connected in the team. I was like, let's find out, we've got to find out. And it was, by the end of the day, I had from three different sources that that was the case. So we kind of knew immediately that there was no keeping it secret. It got out immediately. And then we were just waiting for the sort of formal announcement, you know, and sort of dreaming the, the, and really hoping that it was real and that, that, that the rumours were correct.
0: Meanwhile, there's no shortage of people ready to point out how far laser fusion still is from delivering energy to the grid. And it's true, the NIFS lasers are wasteful, seriously wasteful. 95% of their energy is lost before it even reaches the whole ram. But they were never designed to be efficient. They were designed to do research, and unlike any other fusion method, they reached their fundamental goal. Vastly more column inches are devoted to magnetic confinement fusion, which happens in donut-shaped tokamaks first invented in Russia. These include the giant International ITER project perpetually under construction in France, but not one of them has come close to ignition. You know, ETAIR is
4: talking about 15 to 20 years before it will do fusion burn experiments. And what I think, again, that's so important about what NIF has done and what Mike is saying, it's here and now. It's not a question of when you'll get burn and it's not a question of
0: how much energy you need to get burn. It's here. Last month, The Economist ran a big report on fusion innovation it gave the NIF one paragraph. Typical, says Ed Moses. Their gain is zero, he reminds me, gain being the excess of energy out over energy in. But because the NIF has gain now, you can say it's not enough. Ed Moses has left Lawrence Livermore now, but he's working on commercialising the design for a laser fusion reactor that Mike Dunn worked on when they were both still there. This design would need 10 laser shots a second instead of the roughly one a day that the NIF currently manages. Doable, Moses says, with new diode lasers that don't heat up when they fire. This design would need 500 million target pellets a year at 50 cents apiece. Easy, says Moses. That kind of number doesn't scare people in the mass production business. And it would need a machine to fire them with nanometer precision and 100% reliability into exactly the right position in the middle of the target sphere, 10 times a second. Done, says Moses. General Atomics built a prototype years ago. But most of all, Moses wants a change of attitude. A fusion energy Manhattan project. Well, stranger things have happened. On my last evening in Livermore, I made a final attempt to find John Knuckles. I had an address on a nice-looking street near the lab. It was for a younger John Knuckles. Maybe a son. A woman with a strong German accent, teaching the harp, said he didn't live there anymore. She pointed to a house down the street. I went over there and rang the bell. No one was home. When I went back later, after dark, there was a car in the driveway and the sound of children and at least one adult. I rang again. A light came on. I could feel myself being inspected through the spy hole. The light went off. No dice. I like to think Knuckles Sr. was in there somewhere, playing with his grandkids, or great-grandkids, or just waiting for the Nobel phone to ring. was reported by me, Giles Wittell, and produced by Matt Russell. Sound design was by Tom Birchall and the editor was Jasper Corbett.
3: Tortoise.
0: How do you solve a crime in reverse when you believe that someone was murdered but have no clue who the victim was? We have to do our job. And we have to find out who did they kill? If it's possible. How are we going to do that? I'm Jake Halpern. And this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.